This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is December the 1st, 2023. I'm Scott Lunderbone. I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, it's the end of the BC legislature session, and it's the end of Politicos for now. We're going to take December <laughs> off. We're tired. You may have given our listeners a slight... Uh hard adapt with that one but uh yeah we've uh decided with the uh session ending and uh both of us have a lot going on outside of the podcast uh we're to take a step back for a couple weeks while we're in the uh the very slow season for uh political content and you know, of course we'll something big happens like uh you know a certain prime minister decided to take a walk in the snow we'll of course be back but uh Failing that, we'll uh, be back in your feeds come January. I'm not going to be hoping for snow in London if Rishni Sunak uh, decides to leave, but it would be very funny. We won't not be back. Not the Prime Minister I was thinking that. about. Yes, here in Canada is what we need to focus on. Let's start here in British Columbia. As mentioned, the legislature has risen with a hectic time allocation race to the end, as happens like not not every session, but enough that each party gets their chance to say, how dare you invoke closure? You have shut down democracy. This time it was the Greens and BC United who got to shout it at the NDP. Well, I, the Greens get to do that all the time because they're never on the side that isn't, uh, or that is in government and not, uh, they're for invoking it. Yeah, it's one of those things where there got to be a lot of criticism directed towards the uh ndp particularly around the fairly substantial housing bills which i didn't listen to the uh last couple episodes for our our dissection of those but uh a lot of people weren't happy that legislation quite so consequential was getting put through in a very rushed time allocation manner and yeah i can kind of see the point in it like in theory this is a place where or elected representatives gather to actually hash this stuff out and debate. And, you know, even though a lot of the stuff happens before anything ever gets to the floor, uh, particularly in majority government times, it's still, I think, good for democracy to go through the the motions on that. And, I don't know, maybe it wouldn't have killed them to uh, have an extra week of sittings or even better, have introduced these bills several weeks or months earlier. For my own, like, curiosity's sake, I decided to go back through the past, oh, I went all the way back to 2009, uh, numbers of sessions that the legislature has sat, and I tallied up the number of government bills introduced, the number passed, the number amended. I also looked at, because they were there, number of private members' bills, um, but I haven't looked at that in any serious way. The only thing I'll note is that in 2019, three private members' bills passed, and they were all from Andrew Weaver. Uh, and before that, the only other time a private member bill passed was in 2014. There was a like Terry Fox Day Act that I think was 
not too controversial. Uh, but what I <laughs> yeah, it's that's about as probably a popular private members bill as you can possibly get. Uh, and what's there's a few things that are fascinating in here uh, from the aspect of democratic debate. It's actually pretty consistent how many bills get amended under like the late Gordon Campbell, Christy Clark, John Horgan, and David Eby's term now. It ranges from like 10 to 30%. And some of the high ones were under Horgan's era. But, you know, 2021, only 7% of the bills they introduced that year were amended. Two of 30. Uh, other times, you know, Gordon Campbell had 23% one year, 20% another year. It's always usually around 20% of the bills. And sometimes that's the government admit, that's usually the government admitting there's something they screwed up in drafting. And so the legislative process does matter. And in this latest session, we saw 10 bills of the 47 that were passed were amended. Uh, it's a little bit hard to do a session by session comparison because some of these sessions were extremely short. The shortest one being a few days when only one bill, the uh, supremacy of parliament was introduced in 2017 before Christy Clark uh, lost her confidence vote. That bill never goes anywhere. It's a ceremonial one. But in, oh, which was it? Her first session was 2011 and 2012. That had 56 bills introduced, 51 of which passed with 13 amendments. And I was like, that was her first session. So it was like a year and a half. But then like a later session, she only sat for a third of the year. So it's hard to do a one-to-one -one compare. I did do like how many bills has each prime minute, each premier passed during their time in office. And Christy Clark's governments were passing about a bill every two weeks. John Horgan's just over a week for a bill. And that's taking the whole year, not just sitting days. And EB in this year has passed a bill every seven and a half days. If you, you know, take the number of bills and divide it by the time he's been prime premier. I don't know what that tells us other than he's had an ambitious start. Yeah, I think we'd have to dig a lot deeper into just how consequential those bills are to really get a sense of that. And like, I think we mentioned all of his housing bills probably could have been one or two. They just would have been much bigger. So my, my next level of analysis maybe will be downloading all of the laws passed and doing a word count on how many words each premier has introduced. And this will be valuable to no one. <laughs> this is what you're planning on spending your December doing, is it? <laughs> I partially wish I was. <laughs> no, it's going to be going to Christmas markets and stuff. <laughs> so their bills are all law now. The one major change they made at the last minute was the Miscellaneous Statutes Amendment Act Number 4 was amended uh, in an extended committee slash third reading. We mentioned this one last week, I believe, and we've mentioned it a couple of times because it changes how cities are to deal with uh, alternative sheltering provisions. So if they want to do an injunction to evict a homeless camp, the courts have said there needs to be a reasonably a reasonable alternative to, for them being able to go to the people being evicted. So the province tried to put a definition in the law. Municipalities got mad saying this definition is too tight without any sheltering space. We'll never get an injunction, which the courts shouldn't be granting them based on the precedents they've set anyway. And a number of civil liberties organizations criticized it for being uh, too too broad of a definition that didn't even reflect some of the rulings that the court said for what is reasonable. 
And so no one really was happy with this. And their solution was to say, all right, well, we'll pass the law, but we won't enact it until a future time as we can have a chat with everyone. That also didn't please too many people. No, it didn't. But uh, that is kind of the nature of that uh, particular issue is that it really is one where you pretty much upset everybody no matter what you propose. The, the, but what was the uh, I couldn't I couldn't find it actually. I think it's just a delay on the uh, implementation. There was an amendment proposed by BC United that gave specific dates as to when the bill would be delayed until, and that required the minister to explicitly consult and report back. Uh, and the Greens added on that the consultation should not just be with municipalities, but also with First Nations, given the number of. Uh, indigenous people that are homeless in this province. Uh, and the government defeated that in favor of their own amendment that hadn't been published this afternoon when I looked at it. It had been circulated by paper copy in the legislature, and they hadn't put it on the internet yet, Scott, so I don't know. <laughs> you think these days they'd be quick to update the, uh, the website? They, they, they'll stuff. probably have it by be... tomorrow or Monday, but yeah. The bills don't always get updated on those things instantly. Sometimes it takes an extra couple of days. The other thing that came out that we missed actually a month ago was the third quarter interim financial reports, which took us up to September 30th. And I think this is good to look back on at how the political parties have been doing and especially how that will position them going into election year next year. Uh, I The numbers are fun here on the like total amount they received in Q3, as well as the donor numbers are similar proportions. So the NDP had about 870,000. BC United had half that at, or less than half of that at 400,000. BC Greens had about half of that or less than half of that at 160,000. And Conservatives had a third of that at 50,000. And the donors are similar. It's like NDP, half that BC United, half that BC Greens, half that BC Conservatives. And it's really funny because the like BC United's not doing great on fundraising, especially compared to the government, but they're still trucking well above the party that is polling as well of them. I mean, they had a fundraising message in the past week saying they have a new fund that is empty. So please give us money because we need to market our brand better. <clears throat> well, this is one of those things where often with fundraising, Fundraising follows political success, not necessarily the other way around. Uh, so the BC NDP got a significant boost to their fundraising after they became government. Um, and the BC Liberals fell back quite a bit when they lost government. So you, it's like not a surprise to me that a, an upstart party is not posting the same fundraising numbers as one that has been around for a lot longer was government at one point has an existing uh, database of donors. They can regularly contact uh, and fundraise off of all, all of this stuff takes time to build up and being a small party with limited resources, you know, you're bootstrapping all the way up there. So it's not a shock that it's low. If the polls are consistent um, from this point forward, it would not surprise me if we start to see the gap close. But uh, just on the infrastructure side alone, it's going to be tough for that to fully close. But 
I'm not even sure they necessarily need to close that gap. It's really going to be the case where this is a party that is, for the Conservatives, going to be focused on picking up a few winnable seats in the interior. They're not going to be doing big ad buys in the major media markets in the southwest of the province. So that already saves them a, a bunch of money. Um, they're going to be much more targeted in, in where they go if they actually want to pick up seats. So in some ways, they don't actually need to be pulling neck and neck with BC United. And with enough runway, they, they may be able to close the gap. Indeed. Uh, the Greens also need to find some traction, although thank like in some ways these numbers aren't terrible for them. Like they're still, they're not at the point where they can like become a competitor for official opposition, but they have also not disappeared from the scene. They're a good, they're in a good stasis to hold their to maybe gain a seat here or there. If things go their way. Um, yeah. Good news for the NDP. Uh, everyone else is just competing. Like when, your three opposition parties aren't even making as much as the government combined. It's quite the situation we're in. The other numbers the government is looking at is the second quarterly report on the province's fiscal status. Uh, The headlines here are that our revenues are up 1.4 billion, which helps bring our budget deficit down to 5.6 billion. Uh, That, you know, those numbers kind of bounce around and we've seen that in the past. Um, it's still like roughly around where they wanted had said it would be, but I think what we all missed or not all, but at least in our Slack, we missed initially that they had housing projections in here because, you know, a big chunk of our economy relies on housing, uh, and the sales there. So, uh, do we have good news about how housing starts are going to go in the next year, Scott? Yeah, so uh, year to date, they're up 11.8%, which, yeah, good. Not enough, but good. Uh, and they're also projecting that the uh, 2023 and 2024 could be above the historical average. Uh, this was all prepared before the recent slate of uh, legislation, so potentially even more, although that doesn't really start to kick in until middle of next year, so probably won't see a huge shock to the system till 2025 off that would be my guess but uh yeah good news ish on housing that's i mean the one thing that people pulled out that is not so optimistic in here is there is an expectation for 2024 that housing starts in bc will actually be down 9.3 percent and i think that is based on looking at higher mortgage and lending rates, making it just harder to get things started. Uh, And this would have a real impact of 4,500 fewer homes being built next year as opposed to this year. But as you mentioned, that doesn't include literally everything they have just made law. So uh, let's hope they can close that gap a bit. And especially if BC Build starts kicking off some public sector building that can also quickly close that 4,500 gap and push us into the net positive. Like housing is still being built. It's just we want 
to continue to build more and more, not slowed that down. The other thing that uh, came out this past week that is actually good news for the government was the Climate Change Accountability Report. I just want to touch on this quickly because this is the accounting of our greenhouse gas emission estimates and trying to see if the efforts we are doing to bring those down are working. Uh, annoyingly, it takes a long time to figure out how much greenhouse gas we're emitting. So we only have numbers for 2021 right now. I think it's like 18 months to figure out all of the averages and calculations. It's we 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 don't have a measure. Well, it's not like there's a me- it's not like there's a meter attached to every tailpipe and uh, smokestack in the province. So I, I get why it uh, takes a while. And that's even before you have to factor in the uh, the even harder to measure sources like wildfires and. Uh, Various other ones that uh, don't necessarily have a, a single easily measured point. So yeah, it, it makes perfect sense why it would take quite a while to go through each of those, figure out your estimates, tally them. The up, good news is we are not. down in gross emissions three percent from two thousand seven, which is what our baseline targets are set against, and our net emissions are down four percent from two thousand seven. Uh, from twenty eighteen, when Clean BC started, we're down. 6 and 5% respectively on that. So we are starting to see things trend down. Some of that is still in the report residual effects of the COVID-19 shutdowns because that was a really good way to stop emitting greenhouse gases, it turns out, uh, but not not a sustainable one. Well, it, effective. I wouldn't say a good way. It would it, effective, yes. It notes in the report, though, that based on longer-term emissions modeling, if all clean BC policies and programs planned today are fully implemented, we will achieve 96% of our 2030 targets, which notably isn't 100, but it's much better than some of the previous things where we talked about getting 75% of the way to our targets. I feel like 4% is an easily patchable number. Um, Well, actually... On second thought, you've probably picked the low-hanging fruit, so it's maybe not as easily packed at that point. But the point is, like, things are off a little bit. You know, the assumptions are a little conservative in there, and uh, you know, it would not be that surprising if uh, that were the case. It would end up at one hundred and two percent or something. It's with that small a number, I could see it being uh, margin of error or close to it, particularly when you're projecting out that far. Yeah, it's much closer to a rounding error than it is to like, we need some more big actions. But uh, that only looks ahead to 2030. I know that we do have to, we or we are aiming for net zero by 2050. And I didn't go through this report enough to figure out if it has figured out if we're getting there. And that caveat that everything has to be fully implemented, uh, is still there, right? We still need to actually do everything we've said and not like, I don't know, throw it all in the garbage can as two of the parties in this province want to do and present nothing as an alternative. Yeah, I'm sure the uh, federal liberals uh, climate plan looked a lot more solid six months ago when projecting out than it does right now. So yeah, um, definitely the case where the unexpected could certainly throw a wrench in it. I, I wouldn't put the political risk in BC all that high, kind of for the reasons and we were just talking about in the story before last. Well, it has been interesting, right, this past couple of weeks, because there has been the pressure on David Eby to follow the suit of other provinces in demanding more exceptions to the carbon tax. 
and bringing BC in line with even the oil exception. And I think they hemmed over it a little bit publicly initially, but have now like largely decided that they have the political capital here to just dig their feet in and go, no, we're going to be the climate leader. We're going to continue to be the climate leading province and we will just do our thing if they want to shoot their climate plans in the foot. So be it. But, you know, I am pleased to see he's taken a bit of a backbone there. Yeah, they they have a fair bit of political capital. You can spend a little bit of it down. And uh, they've also just done a pretty good job of being like the pretty reasonable, fairly centrist, you know, or in the like sense of just kind of meeting British Columbians where they are, which I think does give them a little bit of flexibility to not necessarily get swept along with every bit of political wind that they can occasionally say, no, this, this actually made sense for us to just continue on course. And as long as they're doing enough things elsewhere, it uh, doesn't become a huge political problem for them because they, they get the overall vibes right. Uh, and that means not every single thing becomes a, uh, a thing that can uh, start to gain traction with the, uh, the voters against well, them. Speaking of things, Gaining traction, not necessarily with voters, but with institutions. The provincial attorney general, Nikki Sharma, is taking fire from the Canadian Bar Association's BC branch, as well as the Law Society BC, for some of the comments she has made. There was a recent case decided in the province uh, around sexual voyeurism, which was not released publicly for I'm assuming protection of the victims. Um, but Sharma shared an article about it saying, quote, there are no good excuses to be a sexual predator. It's important that all actors in our justice system understand a trauma understand a trauma-informed approach to dealing with sexual abuse to the survivors of predators. You've done nothing wrong and it is not your fault. Now she's saying that in light of reports that the judgment uh was effectively soft on the perpetrator, a uh, conditional discharge after pleading guilty uh, to, quote, installing a hidden camera in a bathroom used by an international student living in his home, which is creepy, terrible behavior and easy to condemn. Uh, yeah. In fact, it's criminal. Uh, the point the Canadian Bar Association and relatedly the Law Society have brought up is it's one thing for you know, random people to be mad. It's another thing for the attorney general of the province who is in charge of the justice system to bring into question a judgment being made. And that's where they're coming from. I mean, this all seems like a little ridiculous, maybe being a little too pressure on their part. Was anyone upset when uh, Rona Ambrose uh, brought forward a private member's bill to uh, improve the training that judges get when it comes to sexual assault. Not really. And like th that is premised on the very thing they're taking issue with, is that implying judges are not sufficiently trained and thereby impose an inappropriate sentence. Like, they're fundamentally the same general criticism there. And you know, one that is entirely reasonable for a politician to uh, levy. Like the judges are not infallible. They make mistakes. They have imperfect knowledge. 
And in a democracy, part of the role of elected leaders is to is to keep tabs on that and make policy changes and make and address those where the uh, concerns are. And there's a kind of weird sense in this that uh, both the uh, the law society and the bar association somehow don't feel like it's inappropriate for there to be a political element to the crafting of justice policy, which fundamentally makes no sense in a democracy where our elected leaders have a very direct role in crafting those policies and um, in fact should be reflecting the uh, the views of British Columbians. And they, they take an issue with that this you know is undermining the confidence in the justice system, but ignore the possibility that uh, imposing unreasonably light sentences may also similarly undermine the public's confidence in the justice system. I think what's messy here and what differentiates it from the Ambrose example you brought up is this is like a more specific rather than general comment. It's specific to an individual case. And that's where the lawyers get a bit uneasy because they say, you know, the approach to uh, appeal this would be an appeals court if the victims feel justice wasn't served. To look from the outside at an a closed room, well, it wouldn't be the just. It wouldn't be the or victims. The crown. It would be the crown yeah. prosecutors. Um, um, although on the Ambrose example, that was actually kicked off, and I wish I could remember the case on it. But there was a judge that made some sort of comment around. Um, yeah, the close your legs. One. I think the dress of a victim, um, or yeah, something along those lines. It, it's been a while now um, since that, so the details are not necessarily fresh in my memory. But um, I, that was also the case where there was a very specific case involved that sp- you know caused there to be a realization among the political level that there was a problem there that needed to be talked about and eventually addressed. And like that is where I actually think they are more similar than you're necessarily giving them credit for. At least there we knew the case, right? The case was public. It's really weird and presumably justifiable, but we can't know for sure that this case is closed. And so we can't actually see whether this was reasonable. You know, we can't judge it from the outside. And so like, I kind of get the unease that the profession is having around this, but I also like, I do share some of your concerns you know, counter criticism. It's a, it's a messy story. Um, it is one where like, yeah, and I you think know, like- if we're going to talk about independence, like we talked about in past episodes, premiers writing to the bank of Canada about monetary policy. And does that, you know, is that justifiable or is that undue interference? And I think the lawyers are seeing this as that kind of same thing where they are the, you know, politicians are inserting themselves into a specific case here into a specific decision where there is an independent process to manage that yeah but at, at, at the same time if um the process is not giving results that necessarily um to use their language uh you know maintain the confidence of the justice system 
Um, like that is also an issue and one that uh, there does extend incumbent upon the politicians to step up and um, a start the discussion and eventually make policy changes uh, that result from it. And maybe that's the thing she needs. Actual- like you said, without the details, it's hard to s- say on this, but like that's also maybe part of the issue here is that um, like, it's not enough for justice to be done. It needs to be seen to be done. And if you obscure parts of it, and I'll, I'll grant there are very good reasons why not everything gets publicized. Um, but like, that isn't a costless measure when it comes to this stuff. And there very much is a trade-off there that I don't necessarily think is being reckoned with to the fullest extent as we're seeing some of the, uh, the downstream effects of it uh, here. From the Attorney General to the Solicitor General's office, Mike Farnworth is going to court to ask two BC residents, how how do you get a million dollars to buy a Salt Spring Island home? Uh, they're using the unexplained wealth order laws for the first time in Canada, alleging that this couple went through this stock fraud scheme in the States to illegally secure money that they used to buy what sounds like a decently nice home on Salt Spring Island. And now they're going to have to explain if they acquired their money legitimately. And if they didn't, BC government just got itself a new house. So this, yeah, falls as part of the uh, changes to the uh, civil forfeiture gene that got brought in after the uh, the money laundering inquiry. So reading the story, I actually do feel a little better. But I'm not a huge fan of the, the civil asset forfeiture stuff, uh, generally because the burden of proof is so much lower. You don't actually have to prove there was a crime and whatnot on here. Um, but the the story, and we'll link it in the show notes if you actually want to go through this, because we won't be listing off like all of the shell corporations and everything that uh, the piece details out, which um, come from the uh, the filings in court. Um, but the fact that this is actually like seems to be more of a case of okay, we've actually got all of these dots connected here, and now we're kind of doing this net step to gain some more information. Does feel a, or at least does indicate that it's maybe not as I thought it might have been when these were first rolled out of a lot more of, I don't know, this seems vaguely weird. Let's, you know, let's just start probing without and kind of reverse the onus. At least in this case, there, there seems to be a, at least the appearance of genuine criminal activity and attempts to hide uh, money and this is just kind of like the last step on it and you know, we'll see how the courts deal with all of this because none of this has been proven yet but um, it seems like to bring in an example from you know TV show it's more like getting the subpoena or the warrant for something rather than a just yeah let's do a fishing expedition on this the address of the house is listed in the article so i was looking up past uh real estate listings at some point it was listed for 1.8 million dollars and i also found a listing for it on TripAdvisor as a guest house the lost and found guest house on salt spring island uh I- they make note that it's uh, was serving as a guest house at one point in the story it's a cute little four bed four bath very rural uh, it would be a nice little getaway for farnworth and his family this christmas 
I don't think the uh, the Solicitor General just gets to use whatever the government sees. What's the point then? I know they they sell it off <laughs> Stop and they crime. Oh well, one way he won't be able to get there is the Coastal Renaissance Ferry uh, as part of BC Ferries because it doesn't. And I'm guessing that's just not because it just doesn't serve Salt Spring Island. I know. Well, presume. Yeah, I I was thinking he was on the mainland and then going to Victoria and then over to Salt Spring. I know. I know it doesn't. Um, I needed a segue. Threat service in the mainland. <laughs> the Coastal Renaissance is one of the ferries that you remember as just entering service the other day, 15 years ago. Yeah, yeah. This is one of those crap. I'm getting old, aren't I? Because uh, yeah, the when I first saw this, I was like, really? That's uh, that's down to to swear. These are these are the brand new, new shiny ferries. Uh, Turns out they entered service in 2008, and uh, that's actually a lot longer ago than uh, I would care to admit. Yeah, this ferry uh, has been out of service since August 16th. Uh, like, it's not so much a political issue that it's still in for repairs. It's more that the continual pushing of it back is causing so many knock-on effects with how rough BC Ferries has been sailing literally and figuratively these past few months um staffing issues don't yeah, this, help either but you know this compounds on a whole bunch of sailings that were canceled due to staffing issues um over the last couple of years mainly wanted to uh talk about the story not necessarily because either of us have uh particularly insightful tapes about uh the maintenance and repairs of ocean-going vessels, but more because this is the sort of thing that has lingered on a while and starts to be the sort of thing that gets voters frustrated and becomes one of these, not a bring down the government thing, but a bullet point on the man, I'm really starting to dislike the the way things are going right now, and I don't know, just you know what's going on with the government sort of thing um on this also it would just be hilarious if two successive ndp governments were brought down by ferry troubles but uh yeah <laughs> they were a little ways away Rob from that fleming minister of transportation and a spokesperson for bc ferries both assure everyone that things will be fine uh they are able to manage. You've been saying that a lot for a long like time I've, now, haven't you? I they? took the ferry a few weeks ago and it was completely fine with a reservation. Uh, and I've done reservations for a long time because I just like being guaranteed a spot and not sitting at the terminal for extended periods of time. And so, you know, the, the BC ferries will be fined by the government if they don't make their sailings. So <laughs> everything is fine, Scott. It's all fine. <laughs> uh, also, the other two coastal class vessels are supposed to have their drive motors replaced, um, and they're all going to be changed ahead of next summer. So, I'm sure everything will be fine on the ferry front for the next year. At least they're only doing one at a time. I guess they have to. <laughs> well, until another one breaks down, and then they're doing two at a time. <laughs> Let's jump to federal politics for the last, I don't know, less than half of the show. The biggest news federally is that C-18 worked, kind of, depending who you ask. Did it, though? <laughs> they got some money. Google is not going to ban news 
because they are going to pay $100 million, which was like their bid for what they would be willing to pay up to uh, not the $172 million the government had been talking about when they were bringing this bill in. Uh, therefore, Torstar is very mad, but uh, CBC is happy with this. Of course, CBC is happy. They're going to be distributed in this based on um, how many full-time equivalent uh, journalists there are. And uh, guess who's the uh, largest employer of journalists in the uh, country? It's the CBC. So um, they will get a plurality of the uh, the money here. Not that they necessarily need it, considering they're already get uh, subsidized quite significantly. So this, I mean, is the liberals have been talking about how this is a win. It's really feels like more like a face saving measure than anything else. You know, scraping out something that they can, you know, put a mission accomplished banner behind themselves and move on from. But it's it is hardly a a great win. Uh, we talked last week about how they had to throw in a bunch of extra money in the um, fall fiscal update for journalism, uh, which I think pretty much everyone agrees uh, reading between the lines on is a well. Things are even worse than when we started the C eighteen thing. We're gonna have to figure out how to offset the damage somehow on there. Uh, it's also worth noting that Google has had for quite a while now a philanthropic, I guess, or at least a program where they were funding various journalism outfits uh, around the world uh, to various amounts. Uh, it's apparently all NDA'd, so nobody knows how much each organization has gotten but it's not like they weren't already doing kind of a version of this um before the whole c18 thing so i don't know we don't have a one-for-one -one comparison about how this stats up to their previous canadian funding but it's the net change may not be as big as the uh the price state is and a hundred million does not go all that far when it comes to uh, this bigger country. You know, it's covers, you know, maybe they'll get a one quarter's losses offset as the, uh, the industry continues to shrink. But uh, this is hardly, you know, the, the savior of journalism that uh, the bill was promised as, and, they still lost a, a major distribution channel out of this, and that uh, does not seem to be coming back. And that may end up costing them more than this $100 million, um, gets them. Yeah, it's the deal that if you didn't like C18 before, you can point at this and laugh. And if you liked it before, you can go, well, we got this. And it's it's not really like a win or a loss. It's just kind of, well... Like you said, Google and Meta were giving out a bunch of money before, but it was black box. We estimate it was probably a little bit more than this. Uh, that all died because of C18. And now they have 100. So it's like, at least it'll be more transparent. It will go through, all we know right now is a single collective who will distribute it to uh, eligible news businesses based on full-time equivalent journalists. So CBC gets 
the lion's share, but uh, and post media will get some if they still have any journalists left. They do, but so an interesting thing that uh, got note on uh, the Lime podcast here is that uh, before Google was doing all of this stuff in house, figuring out how much to do it, uh, so they may actually also beyond potentially saving some money just on what gets distributed. Uh, they're now caught in a single check and have none of the overhead of managing this within Canada either. So they may end up saving a bunch of money and just headaches on that as well. So, which, you know, I guess good for Google, but uh, yeah, I'm not sure making Google's administration slightly easier is necessarily what the uh, the intent of the bill was either. There will be more transparency at least so that's like the one silver lining here in addition to not losing could be google Although, i'd be so annoyed yeah it, it would kind of suck not being able to just pull it up uh the vpn business i'm sure would uh love that though um we don't know what google's criteria was for it, but the one thing i'll throw out there is another thing to consider here is that third party group that's going to be doing the management this it's probably going to be staffed with representatives from the various uh people in the industry which if it is anything like everything else this government has done when it comes to dealing with the media means it is probably just going to be a bunch of legacy media outfits doing it so you know your national post and your tour star and your um Globe and Mail and CBC will be deciding how to divvy up the money and decent chance a lot of the smaller independent outfits aren't necessarily going to be at that table when that the uh, stuff is getting figured out how to Absolutely. be uh, dispersed. My podcast empire for some political party to bring forward some kind of alternative plan because in the last election, as I've mentioned, all of the parties basically pitched this as their approach. and. Now they're against it. Well, at least the conservatives are. But all I know about their media plans are to cut funding to the CBC. English. Uh, well, I mean, the CBC is just getting a lot more money now. So. What we do have uh, to talk about with the other parties is a poll. I don't like talking about individual polls unless they're funny or interesting. We have a update from Nanos putting... The Conservatives at 41% and the Liberals and NDP tied at 22%, Block at 6 and Greens at 5.5%, which is way too high, and the People's Party at 2%. Um, I saw a couple seat projectors model this, and it would throw the Conservatives like 200 seats. The NDP would actually gain like 20 or 30 seats, and the Liberals would crater to like 50. Almost all of those are left in Quebec. Like The NDP would have more seats in English Canada than the Liberals would. The Liberals would almost get wiped out in Atlantic Canada. So I guess the heating oil carbon tax hasn't saved them there yet. But this is one poll and maybe that was a bad one for them in there. But it's not that much of an so the liberal NDP numbers being tied, that's new. The the conservative position, it's pretty much in line up a little bit, pretty much in line with where all of the other ones are. So I want to know who's going to win the next election. I wouldn't necessarily see this as an outlier. It's, yeah, going to be interesting to see if anyone else replicates that uh, liberal NDP tie number because 
a huge part of every liberal election campaign is basically running the the viability you need to vote for us because only we can uh, stop the conservatives so NDP voters come over to us and if it's the case where there is genuine uncertainty or even a series of polls that put the NDP ahead that uh, that option becomes a lot more difficult and at becomes a question whether the the liberals can actually be a viable political party if they are not able to consistently poll against the NDP. And that's what happened in 2011, right? Is we got a couple polls suggesting a stronger NDP and a weaker liberal party and a strong performance by Jack Layton, especially in Quebec, that moved first in Quebec and then it just snowballed across Canada as votes flipped en masse in a couple weeks up to an election. We're still almost a year out from an election. So maybe this is an outlier, but it's kind of at the like margins of error of everything else that's been asked recently. And sometimes these like standouts that might just be a polling error can sometimes drive opinion weirdly. Now, the one thing Trudeau can rely on is that he is still marginally more popular than Jugmeet Singh for preferred prime minister, but that's 19% versus 16%. And Polyev has the support of 34% who want him as the preferred prime minister. I think there's a lot of none of the aboves when you ask it this way. Yeah. And from the NDP perspective, they have to really start asking themselves, at what point do they stop holding up a sinking ship. And obviously, people in the party don't want a polyep government. But there is that undoubtedly part of the party that thinks possibly too much like political strategists all of the time, or just purely in terms of political strategy and is like, hey, if we could take the liberals out, come out of the next election, like we did in 2011, where we're the clear alternative. And then we have our two election strategy to challenge for government. But first, we need to kill the liberals, even if that means a one-term polyev government. And the way to do that is they could just hold their promise to bring down the government if they don't bring a pharmacare bill and get it passed by the end of the year, which the government has now said they're not going to do. And the NDP has said they're willing to possibly waive it if they get the right one. So maybe maybe they're not thinking enough. Which is just... Yeah, it was a bit of a humiliating climb down for them. Uh, I will throw this out there uh, with respect to the last bit, is the Liberals have been in a multi-decade long-term downward trajectory. Um, keep in mind, they've only won, what, three of the um, elections in uh, post-2000, winning the popular vote on... It very much may be the case that uh, Trudeau's 2015 uh, victory, in hindsight, looks like a outlier more than anything else, and that you kind of return to the uh, declining liberal fortunes, particularly as the electorate continues to polarize. Um, so just a weakening liberal party in the long term, uh, decl- and a stronger polarization may, may in fact make it 
to be the case where that actually does become viable. Uh, the thing is, to actually get there, you need to be good at politics to actually execute on it and doing the sort of thing where you make a big statement about how this is a red line for you. you know, absolutely, this is it's, must be done or we're going to walk away and then not following through on it. That That is not how you get to that point where you get to supplant the other party. You actually need to be better at kind of the day-to-day actions on that and also run the long-term strategy and doing this, make a big deal, set a benchmark for success that you're unable to meet and then sheepishly not meet it is just not a good look and does not inspire in voters the sense that the NDP is actually going to be able to deliver on any of the stuff they promise if they get voted for. Like, it would be risky for the NDP to pull the plug. They would probably not win, but it would show principle. They had their membership literally vote on a motion saying, you know, stick through with this promise, bring the government down if you don't. And they had the membership essentially unanimously support that. And now they're going to be like, the, the problem wasn't. Yeah, so that that's a thing. And it definitely um, impacted this. The thing is, membership votes, that, that honestly doesn't really matter. The problem is the leadership of the NDP uh, basically took a convention motion that got voted for and affirmed it and used that as kind of their benchmark versus I mean, this is what we are going to do. Um, well, it was in the supply and, and confidence agreement. It's not just yeah. a benchmark from the convention. It goes back to the supply and confidence agreement that said, if but, this but doesn't happen, is, they like, pull the plug and now they've walked that back. But throughout the fall, uh, Singh and, and other members of the NTP caucus have been talking about how important it is that this happened and that this is the thing they are... Um, that they see as their main goal for the rest of the year, and that that is in fact a make or break thing, and that they would seriously consider bringing down the government. Over. It's the same situation and- that Michael Ignatieff was essentially in after when he first became leader of the Liberals, where the confi- uh, the coalition crisis had just passed, and Stefan Dion was out, and he just came in and he said, "You know, we're still not happy with the Conservatives, but I'm just going to put them on double probation." And it and no, it's terrible. So level. you either, if you go hard like this, and I think they were right to, then you need to stick with it, or you just don't go hard. But then also, like, what's your point of existing other well, I, than to just be the other liberals? The thing is, there's a time and a place to go hard, and the time and the place to go hard is when you actually have some sort of leverage you can wield and their leverage is they're tied in the polls and they can pull apart. Well, they're tied in the polls today. Uh, It wasn't the case before that. And yeah, it was not the case that they were necessarily able to have a clear enough upside if they were to go an election that they could credibly threaten to do one. And that just means they, they didn't have a strong hand and everybody knew they didn't have a strong hand and they were not good at bluffing uh, their weekend in this case, as is apparently evident by the fact that they are now folding. Just embarrassing. I mean, they still have 
what's left in the calendar? Two weeks of sittings. I don't think there's any confidence motions coming, but you know, maybe something can get at least tabled and they can point to that and claim as much of a victory as the liberals do on this Google deal. If the bill gets tabled at least. And speaking of being able to claim minor, almost victories, the name, I was going to say uh, <laughs> things that are failing. I, yeah, embarrassing situations. Uh, in this case, the uh, state of the Canadian Navy is uh, not great. They've launched their year-end fundraising so, campaign on YouTube. It turns out, uh, <laughs> not quite. But the um, they did have or the uh commander of the navy vice admiral uh top sheet did put out a, a video on their youtube page as, as well as make some uh remarks at a defense leadership symposium which is i think more public than most military commanders in canada tend to be on this sort of thing so which alone is kind of a little noteworthy uh but basically saying that uh yeah the navy is in trouble they don't have the uh resources to do what or is asked of them and are unlikely to be able to uh meet its uh readiness commitments next year and beyond uh highlighted our staffing issues where in many roles the vacancy rates are above 20 percent which uh depending on the role can be uh catastrophic uh for the ability to actually um maintain readiness on this uh also they're as a result not able to use all of the ships that they have to the uh extent they needed they're only able to uh keep one of the uh new arctic offshore patrol ships in use at one time even though they now have four that are ready because of a shortage of technicians so yeah we uh we knew the national shipbuilding strategy was going through troubled waters. Um, the uh, personnel situation, also not new, but I think it's interesting how stark this the situation has become and that it is now being... It states getting attention drawn to it publicly by the commander of the Navy in a more high-profile way than usual. Okay, but why is the head of the Navy... Only a vice admiral, not an admiral. Uh, because uh, an admiral would be the rank at, if a naval officer was the chief of defense staff. It's equivalent to general uh, in that. It's the, the highest rank you go. So uh, same reason why the Army and Air Force are commanded by lieutenant okay. generals. Sure. <laughs> anyway, the story, yeah, the story, as I was saying before the show just reminds me of like the universities I know where they will fund a giant new facility with state of the art equipment, but then not have the funding to actually staff it. Only in this case, we're also bad at building the facilities. Um, we really need a government that is either going to right size the military if, and just accept that this is the amount we're only going to fund our military or fund it more and just stop being embarrassing. But, you know, I'll go for the former, but let's let's at least have our rhetoric match our uh, dollar commitment. 
Yeah, and I'll go for more the uh, the latter on that one, uh, particularly as we're in a period of increasingly unstable geopolitical circumstances where, um, as we have seen, military equipment and material and personnel are not something you can necessarily whip up at a drop of the bucket. So readiness actually matters, and you need to be ready consistently on this and in preparation for a range of scenarios and not being able to meet current readiness targets, which are arguably scaled more to the post-Cold War, pre-whatever-you-want-to-call-this period um, of increased uh, geopolitical frothiness. Yeah, it's it's not that scaling probably is not sufficient for the current situation, even if we were meeting those uh, readiness requirements, which we're not. So, yes, would be very nice if we had a government that uh, when they put together a defense policy would actually do the following work in terms of uh, budgets and other follow-on work to actually uh, see that it uh, gets fulfilled rather than becoming yet another uh, white paper that goes nowhere. Happy holidays. See you in the new year. Thanks for listening in 2023. Need happy holidays and uh, happy new year. And that has been Playcoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playcoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Palladcoast is a production of Legend Boot Media and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.